idea behind this is that the word gospel is a churchy term that a lot of times gets used and we don't necessarily fully know what it means. The gospel isn't just any message from the Bible. It's a specific message about what Jesus did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Romans 1.16 says that if you understand the gospel, that has the power to bring salvation, which is deliverance, healing, protection, and provision into every area of our lives. And so salvation is available in eternity, but also right now. What Jesus did for us affects eternity and it affects our present. And so we're very thankful for what Jesus did on the cross for us, and it's important that we understand exactly what that was. So we've done two messages in this series. This will conclude it because next week Pastor Greg will be here. There's a lot of things on my heart this morning that I want to cover. I won't be able to do it fully, So, uh, but luckily we have this commitment that I'll be here for like 30 and 50 years, so we'll just, we'll just do it at a later date. But anyway, the two points that we've made the previous two Sundays are that, number one, you are now right with God through faith. We said that's a big deal because many people are still trying to be right with God through their works, through some religious effort, through uh, going to church or reading their Bible or fasting or praying. And I believe in and practice all of those things. I'm the pastor. If I didn't show up, it would be pretty negative on, on Sunday morning. But I don't show up to get right with God. What makes me right with God isn't what I do. What makes me right with God is what Jesus did. That's a simple truth, but we need to go back over it and, and remind ourselves of that. Number two, last week we talked about, or letter B there on your notes, you are a new creation. You really are a new person. You've been changed. If you've accepted Jesus on the inside of you, your spirit was born again. And he was transformed. Ephesians 4.24 says that you've been recreated in righteousness and true holiness. So it's not a philosophical conversion. It's not just something I change in my mind. It's, it's a real transformation that occurred on the inside of me when I accepted Jesus. We said that's what separates us from really any other religion. Most other religions are about changing the way we think and, and following a prescribed set of behaviors. Now, there are Christian behaviors that are good, but those things don't make us right with God, and they don't really define Christianity. It's been said a million times, but it's still true. Christianity is not a bunch of rules. It is a relationship with a person named Jesus. Those were the points we made previously. What I want to do today is, and if, if you ought to just float out of this Sunday. This, when I learned this truth, it changed my life. It altered. It is one of my just most precious things I have ever learned. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what it really means to be forgiven. What does it really mean to be forgiven? Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened. That means doesn't mean he made you faster. It means he made you alive. Together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How many trespasses, how many sins did he forgive you? All of them. When and how did he do it? He said he did it by blotting out 
the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Letter A there, all sin was paid for and forgiven when? On the cross. And he creates this amazing visual picture here. He says that this thing was blotted out, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. What is that talking about? So back when, when Paul wrote this letter, uh, he didn't have an ink pen, right? He had, he had parchment, and he likely had a, a little thing of ink and a pen, and you would dip the ink in there, and then you'd write a little bit, and then you'd get some more ink and, and all this kind of stuff. And what an interesting thing about that is the ink didn't set immediately, and so you could get some water, and you could get a, a cloth or something to blot the ink out. Does that follow me? So I, I get some water, and I wash the, the ink off there. So if I made a mistake, I could, I could blot it out. I could uh, rewrite something. And what he's saying here is that there was this handwriting of ordinances. Now, if you go back to the original language and, and look at what that means, and you look at different translations, basically it's saying this. There was the Mosaic law, which said, don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. And then there were all these curses and punishments that were associated with the law. And we've read a lot of those. They're in Deuteronomy 28. So leading up to Deuteronomy 28, there's all these laws. Do this, don't do that. And then Deuteronomy 28, there's all these punishments that are associated with not doing the stuff he told you to do. Everybody with me? So what is he saying here? He's saying that there was all this stuff that was written down and it was specifically against you. It was against you personally. So there was a, a law that was written down about you're not supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that, you are supposed to do this, you aren't supposed to do that. And then when you failed, it's, it's like there was this warrant out for your arrest, wanted for lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it is that we're guilty of, idolatry, wanted for, and then... It's as though there was a, a different people, paper that was, was written that had all the punishments, the judgment that was rendered against you. And so it's like written down, 30 years in jail. Okay, or, or there's this punishment, lose your house, all this stuff. All these things are, are written down, and, and what does it say that Jesus did? It's like he took a, a cloth and he blotted out, he wiped away all of the law and all of the judgment that had been rendered against you. It's a really powerful picture. It's made more powerful when you understand the context of the Old Testament in Numbers 5. We won't read this because it's rather lengthy. But if you go back after this service and you read Numbers 5, what you'll find is that there's this really interesting ritual that occurred when a husband in the Old Testament became jealous of his wife. And what they would do is the husband, if I, for example, thought that Molly was, was being unfaithful, I could go to the priest and I'd say, I'm, I'm jealous. And so there was this ritual 
that would occur. And the priest would get a piece of parchment and some ink, and he would write down all these curses that were to come upon the wife if she had indeed sinned. And then they would take this bitter water and they would blot out the curse into this this drinking water. And then the woman had to drink that water. She literally drank the curse. And if she was unfaithful, it was supposed it would make her sick, but if she wasn't, she would be fine. This curse would bring judgment. But but they would you follow the picture? They would take this ink, this written curse, they would blot it off into this water, and she would drink it. The Bible says we're the bride of Christ. I don't know about you, but I haven't always been faithful. But what Jesus did is when this, this curse, so what did he do? He, this, this context here is talking about that it's as though Jesus went with you and Jesus is your husband and he went before God and, and they blotted out the curse that was supposed to enter your body and bring death and judgment and pain and suffering to you. But instead of allowing you to drink it, he took the cup and swallowed every ounce of that curse in your place. He blotted it out and then he drank it. So you don't have to. Man, that, that is good news. That's the gospel. And beyond that, that's about the most romantic thing I think I've ever heard. God is passionately in love with people. So he drank all of the curse. Galatians 3.13 says that he became a curse for us. That's your blank. He, he ingested that curse for us. So instead of judging us for our unfaithfulness, he, he grabbed that parchment and was cursed in our place. And I want you to know in number three there, because of that, there isn't one drop of judgment left for you to drink. Because he drank it all. Well, that makes me happy. Now, here's a fascinating thing to think about. When did this occur? When did he drink that? He said, I've got a cup of of judgment. I've got this cup that I've got to drink. When did that happen? 2,000 years ago. It happened before you were ever twinkle in your father's eye, right? Years and years before you were even thought of. That means that when Jesus drank that cup of judgment when he became sin for you, he had to become not just the sins that had occurred, but the sins that would occur. Right? Because he died 2,000 years ago. So, so in order... So, your sin, which occurred 2,000 years after Jesus' death, it was still somehow in that cup that he drank. I don't understand that, but that's what, that's what the Bible teaches. Because if it wasn't, we'd all be in a big mess. Jesus would need to come down and die again. But 
all that judgment was done and dealt with and paid for at the cross. So number two says, because all sin was dealt with 2,000 years ago, this means that Jesus paid for everything leading up to the cross and everything afterwards, including things you haven't done yet. Letter A, in Christ, your past, present, and your future tense sins are all paid for and forgiven. Now, this, this, when I heard that, I thought, that can't be right. That's got to be wrong, because I'd been taught that that, that wasn't the case. And I'm going to show you this in the Scripture in just a second, but I wanted to say it first. I'm going to spend the rest of the, of the time here just trying to help you to wrap your mind around this concept. But I want you to know, and we have people that disagree with us about this, and I, I love and honor those people, but I, I want you to understand that, that when you sin now, it is not a new affront to God that Jesus never heard of or never thought of. It's not, it's not some new thing that has occurred that there has to be some religious ritual in order for it to be cleansed and forgiven. Because it was already dealt with 2,000 years ago. Now, Max, how do, you, how do you prove that? Surely that can't be right. Well, it is, it is right. <laughs> and I'll, I'll show it to you. Turn over to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. In order to understand the book of Hebrews, you really have to have some clarity about some stuff that went on in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had a strategy for atoning for sin. And the word atonement, if you look it up in the concordance, it, it actually means to, to cover or to hide. So in the Old Testament, they were continually, by doing these rituals, covering their sin. It's interesting, the word atonement doesn't really even appear in the New Testament. It only appears one time in the King James Bible, and it's actually a poor translation. It should be reconciliation. I'll show you why in a little bit, but they were trying to cover their sin. And so the way that they did this was once a year, they would have this thing called the Day of Atonement. There would be a lot of these rituals. The, the priest would offer uh, uh, the blood of a bull for himself, and then he would get a goat and kill it, and then he'd get another goat and send it to the wilderness. But it all climaxed in this moment where the high priest would take the blood of a goat, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, this this special tent where God lived, and he would go in there and he'd sprinkle the blood on the altar. And this sacrifice was said to atone, to cover the sin of the nation for a year. But if you did sin during the year, then you'd have to come bring some other sacrifice. So this is the the context of what what the author of Hebrews is writing in, this idea that every time there's a sin or every year, there's got to be a new sacrifice to cover up that new problem. Does, does that jive? So they've, they've got this formula, this strategy, that every time there's something new that's occurred or it's a new year, we've got to go through this process, this religious ritual, once again, to get that sin covered. Boy, that sounds like a lot of what we still do today. Hebrews chapter 9. So that's the context for this 
verse. Look at verse 11. So this is the difference between what the high priest did and what Jesus did. But Christ being come a high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. What he's saying there is Jesus didn't go into this physical mosaic tabernacle. He went into heaven, not made with hands, that is to say of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. How many times did Jesus enter heaven? Does he need to enter heaven again every time you sin? No, because what he did, what he accomplished was eternal. It spans all of history past and all of history future. Turn over to Hebrews 9, verse 20 through 24, or 24 through 28, excuse me. He reiterates it. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which is the figures of the true. Again, he didn't go into the Mosaic tabernacle, but into heaven himself, itself, now unto appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. What he's saying here is if Jesus has to suffer every time you sin, then he needed to be suffering way in the past and he needs to keep suffering. Not to, I don't want to ever pick on anybody or any group, but there are, have you ever seen a, a crucifix with Jesus still on it? The reason Jesus is still on it is there are groups of Christians that believe that Jesus is still suffering for your sin. But it says very plainly here that he's not. Because he only did it, he only needed to do it once. And then that was effective for all time. It says he would have suffered often since the foundation of the world, but now, once, at the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, after this is the judgment, so was Christ once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look unto him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the key word in all that passage of Scripture is once. It only happened one time, and it doesn't need to happen again. What does that practically mean, though? Well, he goes on to explain. We're just looking at a lot of scripture here this morning. Hope that's all right. Hebrews 10.1. He brings this sort of back around and summarizes. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. What's he saying there? Every year they would do this ritual, the Day of Atonement. And then if they sin more, they do more sacrifices. Again and again and again and again. More and more sacrifices. More and more blood. But did that ever actually help them? It says it never actually took away their sin. It says it can never make them perfect. And so in doing this ritual over and over again, there's a remembrance that, hey, I'm still a sinner, I'm still messed up. And he says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, if those Old Testament sacrifices would have worked, at some point they would have paid off the debt and then they could quit doing it. It's like my house payment. 
How many of you pay your house every month? I keep paying that thing. I'm actually making progress. At some point, I'll have the thing paid off, and I won't have to make that payment anymore. But what he's saying here is that these sacrifices that the Old Testament saints were offering, they didn't actually do anything. They weren't adding up. They weren't compounding. They weren't getting to a place when they wouldn't have to be offered anymore. For would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers, once they were purged, (laughs) should have had no more consciousness of sins. The worshipers, he's saying, he's saying, hey, if there was something that could once and for all pay off sin, then you wouldn't have to think about your sin anymore. Just like if I could get somebody to pay off my house, I wouldn't get that bill every month and I wouldn't think about the house payment. I wouldn't live conscious of this debt on my house. The point he's making is Jesus, one time, once and for all, paid off all sin. It's not like the Old Testament where there's this continual covering and this continual need to get this new thing back under the blood, back covered up. Because once and for all, all sin was dealt with. And so you, to to live as a Christian, continually aware of all of your failings and faults, To be continually reminded of that is not normal. It's actually actually not healthy. Now, when I I heard that, I thought, that can't be right, because it seemed like a a lot of the stuff I'd been taught was expressly designed to remind me about what a terrible person I was and all my sin and failure. Okay, and and. I had been thought that feeling condemned about who I was, that that was the path to holiness. That the more bad I felt, that the holier I'd live. But what I found was, the more condemned I felt, the worse I lived. But once you know that once and for all your sin is paid for, it frees you to live in full fellowship and full communion with your Father. And so now I I live better... Andrew Womack says, accidentally, than I ever did on purpose. And that's, that's the truth. Now, verse 4, let's read verse 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again and again of sins made every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. I hope you're getting this. He's trying to make a contrast. He's saying, if there's something in your life that's continually reminding you of your sin, that's Old Covenant. That's not normal for a Christian. Now, skip down to verse 10. 10 through 14. By the which will... So he's talking about the last will and testament of God. Jesus wrote out a will and then he died so it could be enacted. And then he rose from the dead to be the executor of the will so that he could make sure it would be carried out right. And it says, by the which will... We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for how long? All. All. And every priest stands ministering daily, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins for how long? Sat down at the right hand of God. Why is Jesus sitting? He's done. He doesn't need to offer any more sacrifice 
for sins. When he said it was finished, he, he actually meant it. For by one offering he has perfected for how long? Forever them that are sanctified. This raises a lot of questions, which I'm not going to have time to answer this morning. But I want to, and I will answer them. But I want to just illustrate this for you, if you could get these out, uh, Josh. The point I'm trying to make, letter G there, is that sinning doesn't change your righteous position with God. Sinning is a problem because it, it hurts your heart towards God. But God stays consistent toward you regardless of, of what you're doing. And when you sin, it's not like there's some brand new thing that, that has to occur to get your sins forgiven because it was already taken care of. So I saw this illustration years ago, and this really, really helped me. So this chair represents all the sins in your past. This chair represents all the sins in your present. This chair represents all the sins that you will commit. In the Old Testament, when they'd offer these sacrifices, they'd, they'd cover up, they'd atone for your past sin. And so that was, that was good, right? But then there'd be, oh, I just did something else. So then I got to go through another religious ritual and I got to cover up this new sin. Buddy, with me? Now, but here's the thing. Are these chairs still here? They're just, they're just covered up, but, but they're still here. And then I do another sin, and so then i got to go do another ritual. i got to do something else. i got to have the pastor pray for me. i gotta, I got you know, to give in the offering. i got to sit on the sideline. What I would do is I thought, you know, I'd sin, and I'd think, well, God's upset with me for a couple days, surely. So I just, I'll just leave him alone for a little bit, let, let him cool down, you know, and then, and then I'll, I'll go back. That was my religious thinking, my religious ritual. But the idea is i got to cover up my sin. And i got to keep doing it as I sin. But Jesus, come here Jesus. Jesus came and once and for all, he didn't, everybody give Jesus a round of applause. He didn't just cover up the sin. He took your future sin and your present sin and your past sin. And he just stacked that whole thing up and carried it away. So that's, that's encouraging. Now, I'd, I'd applaud that. So this means that you no longer have to live sin conscious. Number three there. Being sin conscious, continually thinking about all the stuff that you've done wrong or will do wrong, doesn't help you. It doesn't help you grow in your relationship with God. Focusing on your sin and failure is not a recipe for success. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I would explain that last phrase if I had more time, but suffice to say that condemnation is not the normal state for a believer. Not normal. So if you feel that way, doesn't mean you don't need to feel bad about it. <laughs> Don't be condemned about feeling condemned. <laughs> what I'm saying is, <laughs> quit feeling condemned. Because when God looks at you, does he see any sin? No, why? Because it was all taken away. When was it taken away? 
2,000 years ago. Now, does that mean that everybody's saved? Of course not. You still have to accept what Jesus did for you. Everybody, we still have free will. We have to make a choice about uh, Jesus. But anyway, what does it mean? It means that sinning doesn't break your relationship or fellowship with God, number four. I can't tell you what a big deal that was in my life. I, I believed for years that if you had sin in your life, I didn't think I was on my way to hell, but I thought that, well, you know, there's a scripture. In, in the Old Testament, David said in Psalm 66, 18, that if I regard iniquity in my heart, he won't hear me. So I thought I, I had this ongoing problem where I had unforgiveness, and I knew that was a sin. Because of that, I thought God wouldn't talk to me. And so for several years, I exempted myself from my relationship with God because I thought I needed to have everything straight and, and cleaned out to be in relationship with my Father. And that is a lie. It is not true. Jesus is the only person that can help you get out of sin. So if he can't talk to you when you're in sin, then you've got a major problem. hope that encourages you. My last point there, so if you, if you know your Bible, you're probably thinking, well, what about 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I don't have the time to do this justice, but it's, it's, it's our opinion that that is not talking about something we do daily in order to keep being forgiven, because what that is is it's just me trying to extend that cloth over the next chair and over the next chair, and it puts all the emphasis on my ability to confess every sin. Now, it's fine, and I would suggest that when you, when you make a mistake, you admit it. Admitting wrong is the first step towards fixing it. Okay, but me admitting and confessing that I've done wrong is not what makes me right with God. What makes me right with God is Jesus, period, and what he did. So what's 1 John 1, 9 about? If you read the whole thing, if I had more time, I'd make it more clear to you. But it's, it's talking about, he, he's going back and forth. There's some people that are saying, we don't have any sin. Sin isn't real. They're Gnostics. Okay, and the Gnostics believed that, that the physical realm like, essentially wasn't real. Like it was so, it was so pointless that, that we just didn't even think about it. And because of that, sin's not real. We aren't really sinners. And so John's writing to correct that concept. And he's saying, hey, you, you are a sinner. <laughs> sin is real. And if you say you have no sin, he says, then you're a liar. <laughs> and the tr truth doesn't dwell in you. But in verse 9, if you confess that you're a sinner... What does he do? He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from how much unrighteousness? All. This is a verse about what happened to you at conversion. When you accepted Jesus, he, he, he stacked up the chairs, he stacked up your sin and carried them all away. Now, I won't fight you over that. If, if you want to confess every sin, I think, I think that's awesome. Go for it. Okay, we're not going to start a, a, a religious war. I just understand that many people are in bondage to this idea 
that I've got to get everything right with God. I've got to get in a, keep a short account with God and that every time I blow it, I've got to go through some religious activity to, to get back right with God. And what I'm saying is that was done for you 2,000 years ago. All your sins are forgiven. All. He didn't leave any out. Thank God. Amen. Let's all stand. I could have my prayer team come down to the sides here. What this should do is create in you gratitude. Uh, I'm so eternally thankful for this. It doesn't make me want to go live crazy. It makes me want to live for Jesus even more because of what he did for me. And I recognize that, that I can go to him at any time, even in my worst moment, and he's still for me. In fact, he's already made provision for me. He's already forgiven me. He's not mad. I really didn't believe this for a long time until I had this amazing encounter with God where, where I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by his love. And I'm just, I had this like a physical manifestation, this, this amazing thing between me and God where we're fellowshipping. And then like 20 minutes later, I went and did something stupid, like, like a direct act of rebellion against God. Now you'd think, how on earth could you do that? You just had this amazing experience with God. And, and the reality is, you just we live in a flesh, and sometimes we do stuff that's stupid. And so I went out and I did this stupid thing, and I was so mad at myself, and I was thinking, how, how could I have just had this experience with God, and then I go do this stupid thing, and... and God said to me, you know, Max, I knew you were going to do that. Right? I knew it wasn't hidden from me. And yet I still gave you that encounter. You know why? Because this was already paid for. I already factored that in. I already forgave you for it. So that's why it wasn't a problem for me to to talk to you. Because I already dealt with this. So he's dealt with all your sin. He got over your sin on the cross. And that's good news. All right, I'm going to pray for everybody. If you need personal prayer, if you've never accepted Jesus, this is the gospel. Your sins are forgiven, but you've still got to accept it. You've still got to make a decision. Are you going to accept that payment or are you going to reject it? And if you reject it, then the Bible says there is no more sacrifice for sins. There's nothing else that can do it. We sang the song, only the blood of Jesus can take away your sin. So if you don't know Jesus and you need to get born again, you come down and pray with one of my prayer ministers. If you need uh, something else, if you need uh, healed in your body, you need a job, you need God, God's in the business of answering prayers. We'd love to pray with you. I'm going to pray for everybody, and then we're going to sing one more song. We'll be out in the lobby. We'd love to shake any of your guests' hands. It would be great to meet any of you. My wife should be out there in a minute. We just love you. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for what you did on the cross. We thank you for these amazing people and what you're doing in their lives. And we just receive right now this revelation that you don't need to live. We don't need to live in just this continual awareness of our sin. We don't need to think about it all the time. And we're just thankful for that. We just receive your love in Jesus' name. Amen. You were the word at the beginning.